All right, Doc said, good morning. How you guys doing? All right, all right, all right. Hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Jared. Um, man, I'm glad to be here with you guys this morning. It's so good to always get a chance to worship, man, when we come here in, in Doxa Church. Um, a little bit about me. I get to be on staff here, okay? I do a, a number of things. I get to do uh, some stuff with the Salt Company, some stuff with Doxa Men, uh, local missions, that sort of thing. Um, but I'm here because my family and I came here last year, and we're in this cycle of, of wanting to plant a church. And so we have our eyes set on uh, Milwaukee, and in a couple years, man, Lord willing, we are praying that the Lord will stir in our hearts, stir in some of you people's hearts uh, to pray for us as we prepare to go out that way. So if you're the praying type, please, please, please continue to pray for us uh, as we seek the Lord uh, in that regard. And so I wanted to, to just continue and jump into our, our series we've been going through. If you guys have been with us for the last several weeks, we've been going through this series called The Explicit Gospel. We've been simply trying to walk through elements of our faith that shape our understanding of the gospel. The first week Rob was here and we, he talked to us about this characteristic of God. And we talked about God in light of the gospel and he walked us through this idea that God is holy. And then we talked about man and, and the brokenness of man from Romans 5, right? And then we talked about Christ. Just last week, Nate brought us the importance of this reality of Christ that not only did he live, not only did he die, but he also rose. Right, that without the death of Jesus, yes, but ultimately the resurrection of Jesus, if we don't get that about the gospel, then we'll miss the whole thing completely. And today what I want to do is kind of double down on that gospel message. It's not so much about the anatomy. Nate walked us through the kind of internal reality of, of, the, of the gospel in terms of what it means, right? What the gospel contains. But what I want to do is to talk about this kind of pure message of the gospel. Not what it contains, but what is its effect. So if you have your Bibles, here's where we're going to be. We're going to be in the book of Galatians. Uh, you can turn there. It's in the New Testament. It's a letter written by Paul. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 24. I trust you'll meet me there. And as you're turning there, I have a question for you to open us up into this message. And it's something like this. Like, have you ever had that feeling in your heart? Like, man, I knew that was too good to be true. <laughs> Right, like, like, like something was going on and, and it didn't quite work out how you thought it was and, and, and you didn't have your hopes set too high anyway. But the thing that welled up in your heart as it fell to the ground was like, man, I, I knew it. Like I knew it was too good to be true. Like I don't know if there's any sports fans in the building, uh, but this past week, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks, you guys basketball fans, right? The Milwaukee Bucks got some great news this, this past week. Damian Lillard, championship caliber player from the Portland Trail Blazers, got traded to come over right down the street to the Milwaukee Bucks. And, and like, I'm, I'm eager to see what the Bucks do this season, right? But, but yo, I'm, I'm new to this idea of having a home team when it comes to the NBA. You know, I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. We didn't have any home teams in there that played basketball. Uh, Chiefs, yes. Royals, yes. Don't really like baseball. And the Chiefs, I mean, Pat Mahomes, it's a, it's a, it's a good time to be a Chiefs fan, right? But, like, there's this reality that I'm learning how to be a, a home team guy when it comes to this team in the NBA here in, in Wisconsin. But growing up in Kansas City, not having a home team, I became a, a bandwagon fan of a particular player and one particular player only, namely LeBron James. <laughs> and those of y'all who know me, right, like you know I'm like this, this huge LeBron fan. You know, like I'm the type who unashamedly LeBron fan, right? Like when he went to the Cavaliers straight out of high school, I was like, well, I guess I'm a, a Cavaliers fan now. 
And then he made that decision, remember that, to go to Miami, to South Beach, and he made this big ordeal. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to South Beach, <laughs> you know? And, and there was one thing that I told myself I would never do if LeBron ever did it, right? Like, I, was, I told myself I would never cheer for the Lakers, <laughs> right? Like, Kobe and Shaq, they weren't really my thing. You know, the Lakers always left this bad taste in my mouth. And I told myself, man, if LeBron ever went to the Lakers, I would, I would probably stop cheering for him. I've been a Lakers fan for the last <laughs> several years now. <laughs> um, but, man, I'm in, I'm in Wisconsin. I'm excited to see what, what the Bucks are going to do. But I want to come back to LeBron, right, because when, if y'all remember, when he went down to South Beach, he went to Miami. Do you guys remember all the hype and hoopla around that time, right? LeBron was there. Dwayne Wade was there. Chris Bosh was there. And I remember this particular time before they even played a game. The tip-off never even happened. Right? No one did a dunk yet. They didn't win anything. No conference championships. No, no championships at all. And they were sitting on these podiums, and, and LeBron was sitting there, and he had this mic in his, in his hand. And they were talking about championships. And what did LeBron say? He said, hey, we're not going to win just one. Not just two. <laughs> not just three. Not four. Not five. Not six. Like, he just, he just kept going, Right? And if you were, like, in the LeBron fandom, you were like, yeah, because I know y'all got, y'all got the squad, y'all got the super team, right? Nobody in the league was going was gonna to touch him at that moment. But every LeBron fan, if you're a real LeBron fan, like, you can actually own that LeBron underdelivered in Miami. That takes me to follow some pride, y'all. Like, y'all got to <laughs> receive that, right? Like, he underdelivered in Miami, spent four years there. He promised umpteen championships. He only came out with two, and he under-delivered. And I remember in those moments, I was like, man, I had these high hopes. I thought LeBron was going to get it done, but ultimately it ended up being, like, too good to be true. And I get it, right? Like, all of y'all aren't sports fans in here, <laughs> and that's okay. But, but maybe you've also had this feeling at some point in your life as well. Like, you had a new job maybe come down the pike. Like you were in a job, you didn't really like it, right? And you were looking for something new to do, and your friend helped you out, and, and you looked like there was something on the horizon. You got the application, you got the interview, but lo and behold, two, two weeks later, right, the, the, the job came back void, and, and you were like, man, I, I knew it. It was too good to be true. See, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's been a failed relationship, a missed opportunity, a failed promise, or whatever, but at some point in your life, right, you've, you've had this feeling, and you're like, man, I knew it was too good to be true. This morning I want to talk to the skeptics in the room, right? Like if this has ever been you before, what if I told you that there was something, a message that if you believed it, it would have the most profound impact on your life? And if you know the message I'm talking about, right, the message, if you can say it in chorus with me, the message is the gospel, right? It's the gospel, the gospel is the only message and quite literally the only thing in life that might sound like it's too good to be true, but it actually holds up to what it promises. And that's what I want to argue for us this morning. And here's how I want to do it, okay? I want to show us that the gospel is a pure message of grace. I want to answer why this message of grace is so important. And then I just want to apply a few things for us some implications of the gospel of grace on our lives as we get to the story of Paul and his testimony. You guys with me? Let's look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. It says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ 
and are turning to a different gospel. Now, I'm going to pause right here for a moment. I want to catch this up kind of a little bit of background on this book of Galatians, right? Like Paul is writing this letter to this series of churches in Galatia. It's this city in, in, in Asia Minor. And there are two main tensions that are kind of rising up in this text, one of them being uh, that Paul's authority as an apostle is being challenged. Right? People are coming and they're saying, hey, Paul probably isn't who he says he is because of this message that he's preaching. He couldn't be one of the apostles. He wasn't with any of the 12 when Jesus was walking around. How could he be a sent one from Jesus if he had never had an encounter and experience with Jesus? His authority as an apostle was being tested. And we'll see he will defend his authority as apostle later on in this text. But the second thing is this, and I think this is the more profound thing for us to, to see in the text today, is that the churches are quickly turning away from the true gospel. You see, normally when Paul writes to the church of the New Testament, he comes with this polite greeting, right? He often says, like, hey, I give thanks for you, grace and peace, right, all these sort of things. He even says this to the church in Corinth. Right, those of you who know your, your Bibles, right, the church in Corinth was this church that had like so many of these issues going on in the church. Things that Paul should have never, ever written like, yo, I, I give thanks to you, <laughs> to this church. Like literally, there, were, there, were, there was a man that was sleeping with his stepmom, and nobody had a problem with it in this church. He had to re repeatedly address prostitution in this church. There was spiritual abuse in this church. People were getting drunk at communion <laughs> in this church. Like, imagine trying to explain to God, like, yo, hey, sorry, guys, Sally just had a little bit too much to drink at communion, right? See, this church had a lot of issues, and Paul was writing to this church, and he even had it in him to say, hey, I give thanks for you. This church wasn't all bad, right? This church had some issues, but it was also probably the most spiritually gifted church at that time. They were spiritually gifted, but they were also spiritually immature. Listen, this isn't my main point at all for this morning, but I think we have to know this. It's important from the text, right? Like our spiritual fruit, doctor, we have to know how God is forming in us is more important than our spiritual gifts, how God is working through us. And I got to say, this is something, that, something, that's, something that's coming from somebody who, who loves the spiritual gifts, right? I, I take it seriously when Paul says, hey, you should pursue the spiritual gifts. You should, you should desire the gifts. Like, I take it seriously when he says that. I mean, I, I, I grew up in Kansas City. I wasn't part of an evangelical church like this when I was growing up. I was part of a black Baptist church, right? And those of y'all who know in the 80s and 90s, if you were black and Baptist back then, if you've been to a, a black Baptist church, you know that they were just borderline Pentecostal <laughs> back then right, and doing all kind of stuff. I'm still waiting on the day in here at Doxa when someone just like gets up and takes a lap <laughs> and comes back around to their seat, right? Don't do that, okay? <laughs> stay, stay seated, please. We were mad charismatic in my church growing up, but here's the point I want to make, okay? Listen, everybody wants to be the one that can sing a tune for the worship team. And everyone wants to be the one that can deliver the, the timely prophetic word. But nobody wants to grow in love. Nobody wants to grow in joy. No one wants to grow in peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Like we all want the gifts. We want to exercise those things, but we often don't want the fruit. 
And what we learn about this church in Corinth is that power, especially that kind of power, this spiritual power in the hands of the immature is more harmful than it is helpful. And yet still God is so good and he's so gracious that he gives it liberally. Isn't that something? See, Paul literally has to tell the church in Corinth, hey, maybe it's better if you don't gather at all. Why? Because your gatherings aren't doing any good. What was he trying to say to this church? He's saying, hey, you're so gifted. There are some things going on here. You've been blessed by the Spirit, but here's the thing. You're lacking in your love for one another. Since the things you're doing aren't protecting and fostering this unity, but they're creating division. And with all the gifts in the world, but no love, he lets this church know, and this is the word for us too, you would be nothing but a loud gong. And it's in this church that Paul says, I'm thankful for you. See, and I love this about Paul because if you look at his greater work across the Bible, we see that he is staunch on this line. He has this line that he simply can't cross. And it's this, he has this patience for people who are growing in what it means to be loving. And he has this patience for, what, for people who are, are growing in what it means to be peaceful and kind. Because he can get that. And we'll see this in his story in just a little bit, right? He's experienced that. The grace of God come into his life when he hadn't experienced any of these things in his life. And God was faithful and gracious and slow and patient to work with him to make these things true in his life. He can get that. But he doesn't have patience for those who are distorting the message of the gospel. And here's the truth that I believe he's trying to communicate about God as an inspired pen under the authority of the Holy Spirit. I think he's trying to tell us this. He says, you can get a lot of things wrong, but get the gospel right. And the spirit will rejoice. But at the same time, you can get a lot of things right, but get the gospel wrong and the spirit will rebuke. See, in other words, what you believe about Jesus, not what you do for Jesus, is the most important thing about you. And we see that especially as we compare the opening of 1 Corinthians to this opening here in Galatians. Right, Paul has this line that helps him look at this tore up from the floor up church in Corinth and say, I give thanks to you. But at the same time, look at these churches in Galatia that are buttoned up otherwise, but they're getting something wrong in the nuance, just the nuance of the gospel. And Paul is filled to the brim with disgust. Look back at verse 6. He says this. He doesn't give, he doesn't open up with thanksgiving. He opens up with something else. He says, I am astonished. And when you read this word, like this idea of astonished, isn't this element of surprise? It's more like this element of disappointment. He's angry here. He's angry. He's filled to the brim with disappointment. He's literally at a loss for words. He's looking at this church, writing this letter, and he's just like... I'm astonished. This church, not even four years old yet. And they're now turning away from the gospel. He's at a loss for words. I want us to see why. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly, look at this word, deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. See, this idea of deserting. It comes with this, this military inclination, right? Like this idea that you're leaving your post too early or that you're compromising your position, right? 
Like this idea of, of militaristically compromising your position. And, and what does that do? That not only compromises you, but it, comp- but it compromises the people that you're with. It'll compromise your reputation. It compromises everything about you. And he's saying, this is what the Galatian church were doing. They was deserting the gospel in this way, turning away. Now listen, I don't have too much experience with this idea of desertion. But I've seen some military movies. Maybe you've seen some military movies too. And you've seen this happen, or like maybe you've watched a, one of those poor relationship movies on, on, on Lifetime, right? A lot of betrayal, a lot of desertion going on in those movies. But what do we know that happens when someone begins to walk this path of desertion? Like we know it doesn't just happen suddenly, right? Like there's often this teetering and tottering back and forth, and they're, 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 they're thinking, they're asking themselves, hey, should I, should I do this thing or not? Should I go through with this? You see the inner turmoil? He said, what are the consequences? (laughs) Like, do I really think the alternative would be better? We have these questions. We have these ideas in our mind. Desertion often never happens suddenly. But hear this. Once the decision is made and it's made with conviction, the desertion happens regardless whether it's right or wrong, right? But we have to know, often not without careful consideration. Uh, We can think Paul is coming down hard on this church. Like, why doesn't Paul just simply correct him and say, hey, you're getting something just a little bit wrong in your theology. Why don't you just correct that a little bit? You know why? Because it wasn't some accidental sway from the gospel that the Galatians were doing. (laughs) They didn't accidentally get something wrong in their theology, but it was this calculated and this unified effort to say, hey, whatever Paul taught us, we don't believe that anymore. We believe something entirely different. We believe a different gospel. So we have to ask the question, like, what is this different gospel that the Galatians were giving themselves to? In one phrase, we can call it this, it's a gospel of merit. It's this idea that I can earn my salvation. The gospel, yes, right, you got to understand, like these people that came to this church, they weren't like coming in and saying, hey, Jesus never lived. They weren't coming here and said, hey, Jesus never died. They weren't coming here and saying, hey, Jesus never rose from the dead. They were actually saying all of those things. But they would just put something else in front of it, right? They gave themselves to this Jesus plus gospel And the biggest argument against the gospel in Paul's day was that if you wanted to be counted among the chosen people of God, then you had to be circumcised. So you know your Bibles, way back in Genesis, uh, God makes a covenant with a man, and he forms his people of Israel, and he uses circumcision as this sign to show, hey, I have a covenant relationship with you. And if you know this story, you know that God chose this man named Abram. Abram was a pagan polytheistic man who didn't know about the God of the universe, and yet God saw in his grace to choose him and call him out of his father's people. And he would call him to begin his own family, and he would call him, and he would actually change his name from Abram to Abraham, and he would promise him a new land and promise him that he would be the father of many nations. But why is this important? See, it's important because all of this happened before God had even made a covenant with him through circumcision. See, God called Abram by faith, not because of anything he had done. Circumcision was just the sign. And it was always supposed to be just this sign that pointed to this reality that their God was a God of faith, not a God of works. 
But as they began to walk in their identity with God, right, what ended up happening? They began to put the emphasis of their faith on the significance of their sign. And anyone who didn't have that sign couldn't be a part of God. And so by the time we get here to this text in Galatians, we have to see that inevitably the people who have been convicted about Jesus who weren't Jews had to ask the question, how Jewish do I have to be to be a Christian? And what's the answer? We're not Jewish at all. See, if that's the gospel of merit, we have to know what is the true gospel. The true gospel is a gospel of grace. And it's a gospel of grace only. It's this gospel, this real truth, this profound truth that we undeservingly receive the gospel freely. The gospel of grace is this unmerited favor from God. It's this unmerited goodness of God that he had for you to save you even in spite of you because you were unable to think, do, or add anything to your life to save yourself. And Paul wants us to know that this is the true gospel of Christ. But it's not just the true gospel, it's the only gospel of Christ. And this gospel can't be changed. In fact, he says in verse 7, he says that there are some among you who trouble you, who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But Paul wants them to hold fast to the gospel that he preached. Because there's only one. It's the only one that exists. It's the only one that saves. It's the only one that has power. But y'all, don't you know that even us today are still at the peril of falling to false gospels? <laughs> right, so this idea that yes, Jesus Christ died, and yes, Jesus Christ rose, and, and, and you can have eternal life if you place your faith in him, but you also have to <laughs> do fill in the blank. You also have to be a good person. You also have to vote this way. You also have to raise your kids this way. You also can't live over there. Like, have you ever heard this message before? Maybe you've preached this message even to yourself, or maybe you're a part of the family, that, that, that this is the element of their lives. And you're stuck trying to figure out and parse through, hey, what is the real gospel? <laughs> Is it, all these, is it all these things that Jesus Christ died and he raised and I have to vote Republican and I have to vote Democrat and I have to homeschool my kids and I have to make my kids be proactive in public school? <laughs> How have we added to the gospel in our own lives? How have we believed simultaneously in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but also held in the other hand a Jesus plus gospel? See, we look at these things as the barometer of our salvation. And they can't be. Because the truth is, if we're going to hold to a Jesus plus gospel, what we are effectively saying is that some way, somehow, I can save myself. <laughs> but what do we know is the true message of the gospel? It's not that you can save you, but it's that you need to be saved. <laughs> you need to be wrecked and renewed by the grace of God. Why? So that you can receive new life through the grace of God. And so how do you receive this grace? How do you receive it? I'm glad you asked. Listen. It's this simple. Look 
at the cross. <laughs> Look at the cross. It's Jesus bleeding for you. If you want to know what needs to wreck your heart, it is simply this, Christ crucified. It's this fact that humanity is so broken that it took the death of Jesus in order to experience holistic restoration. It's this fact that Jesus saw you personally and you all, us, right, holistically in all of our sin. And he left the throne of heaven to have himself pinned to a cross so that you might see what he's done. So that you might step into the grace that he has to offer you. The grace that sounds too good to be true, but is simply too good that you don't deserve and that you could never earn. So your salvation is not found in your heritage. <laughs> You're not saved because your grandma was a Christian. You're not saved because your mom and dad believe. It's not found in your political affiliation. It's not found in your culture. It's not found in your ethnicity. It's not found in how brave you are. It's not found in how strong you are. It's not found in how compliant you are or how weak you are. But it's found in Jesus alone. You can't work for it. That's grace. And how many of you know that's the greatest news you can ever receive today? This is the message that Paul was literally willing to die for. He would bet his life on this. And I want to be with him in that, don't you? But why is this gospel of grace so important? Look at verse 8. Paul says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, listen to this, let him be accursed. Paul uses strong language here to let us know that the gospel of grace is the only gospel that exists. There is no other gospel. He looks at himself and he looks at the people that's coming with him and he says, yo, I bet it on my life and I bet it on all their lives too, that this is the only gospel that exists. And if that wasn't enough, he looks up, he reaches up to the heavens and he says, yo, even if an angel from heaven were to come here in this place right now, Doc said, all in this splendor. Like, you know what angels used to look like in the, in the text? Like they were some of the most fearful looking things you could ever lay your eyes on. Like an angel would come in here, the text tells us, like we would be tempted to worship this being, strong, powerful, winged, many-eyed, right? Different kind of, like, whatever. And Paul's saying if that thing were to come here and preach the greatest gospel message you have ever heard, yo, Jesus Christ lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that, that we should have died, and he rose victorious. He defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave. And he would have came here and told you this gospel message, but then at the very end said, anything other than now repent and believe. He says, let him be accursed. You gotta understand what this word accursed means. Accursed is this Greek word anathema. And anathema means literally cast out for eternity. Anathema means condemned to hell. Anathema means eternal damnation. And Paul is saying, 
I put this on my life. I put this on my people's life. He's saying, I put this on the life of the Holy Host of heaven. If anybody comes down here and preaches to you a different gospel, he says, tell them to go to hell. Wow. There is no other gospel but the gospel of grace. And he doubles down in verse 9. Look at this. He says, as we have said before. <laughs> Apparently, this was a common thing they said, right? He says, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, this gospel of grace, let him be accursed. See, Paul is this sold-out disciple for this message. This gospel of grace that seems too good to be true, but in reality, it's just simply too good. Like imagine hearing a message like this when all your life, all you knew was, I have to be a certain thing in order to experience the good graces of God. I have to do a certain thing in order to experience the good graces of God. Like maybe you came in here and you're thinking, you're wondering, like, have I ever done the thing that's enough to be able to experience the grace of God? Like you came in here confused about your own salvation. You came in here wondering, how will your family ever accept you? You came here wondering, am I really saved or am I not? Right? Like you're fighting to prove that you are saved. You're holding on to so many things. Yes, you might believe that Jesus died and rose, but you're also trying to figure out, hey, but what else? Am I missing anything? See, maybe you're here this morning and you don't have to imagine that much because that's your reality right now. But here's what I want us to know. We need to fight tooth and nail to believe the truth and preserve the truth of this gospel of grace. Because just like in Paul's day, temptation is everywhere to be swayed into this different gospel. And we see how serious Paul makes this. And honestly, y'all, it, it, it doesn't take much. Like we live in a day and time, we live in the most connected time in history. Nobody has to go on their feet, right? Sandaled up and walk hundreds of miles to come and bring you a different message. No one's got to hop in a horse and a buggy. No one's got to hop in the old time trains that took forever, had pit stops. You had to sleep in them, right? Like, no, like, we don't have to do that. You can go directly on your phone. You can look on Instagram. You can look on TikTok. You can go to YouTube. You can turn on your TV at night, any news channel you want. You pick CNN, Fox, whatever you want. And you can begin to well up in your heart this reality. Hey, I'm a Christian. And I believe I'm more of a Christian than them because I believe this. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much at all. Like we have to fight tooth and nail to believe this truth and preserve this truth of the gospel of grace. Fight not to be swayed. And listen, I think this is an important message for us today, especially in our station here in America. Why? Because to a people accustomed to an achievement-based life, in this merit-based life, a message of grace sounds like man-pleasing. And this isn't a new reality, right? This was the same truth back in Paul's day. Like imagine hearing this message of grace and saying, hey, 
your life can literally be turned upside down. You can receive the salvation that you're so obviously searching for, right? We're all searching for this reality to be saved, to have an answer for the, the pain and the death and the hell that we deal with in our lives. And, and Paul's coming and saying, hey, the message of the gospel is it. And it's, a, it's, it's a message of grace and you can have it if you just have faith. Imagine hearing that message of somebody coming to you and be like, man, who are you trying to please? message of grace sounds like man-pleasing to a people who are so accustomed to a merit-based life and an achievement-based life. Paul was accused of the exact same thing, but look what he says in verse 10. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? He says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And I love how he says this, right? And it was underlined here in my text. I underlined the word still, right? I love that he says still right here. Because he's pointing to this fact that right now as it stands, as he's preaching this gospel of grace and he's reiterating it to this church, he's saying, now I'm not living a man-pleasing life. He said, I was living a man-pleasing life. He said, when I was sitting under the teaching of Gamaliel, like I know the teachings of Hallel, like I was striving and trying to get to the top of the ranks among the people in my cohort. I would only listen to the things I wanted to listen to and I would fill my ears with the things that scratched my ear. I was a a persecutor of of the church. He said, then, that was when I was living a man-pleasing life. He says, but now, Am I pleasing man? Because if I was still pleasing man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. And I promise you, I bet my life on it. I bet the Holy Host on it. That I'm living a life pleasing a servant to Christ alone. Verse 11, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. He says, I did not receive it from any man, and nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And he goes on, he shares his testimony, and read this for us right here. And I'll come back and do some teaching here in a second. But he says this, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Listen to this in verse 15. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased, when he was pleased, when he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone or nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. I'm going to pause right there for a minute and just let us know that, yo, maybe, just maybe, when you feel the unction of the Spirit working in you and he's doing something in your life, maybe the first thing you should do is not run to somebody else. Maybe you should go and get alone with God. Maybe you should find some time of meditation and prayer. Maybe you should find some time to get fuller clarity on what God wants to reveal in your life. He says in verse 18, then after three years... In Damascus, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. 
but I saw none of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. <laughs> I love that he puts that in there, right? It's just like, yo, he, he saw a celebrity, right? He's like, yo, I swear I saw Michael Jordan in the, in the, in the mall, you know? Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said. The end of his testimony. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Y'all, there is a bunch of stuff I can say about this text, but I do just want to say two things real quick that we've been talking about this whole time, right? Like part of the reality is that Paul's apostolic pedigree was being challenged. But here we see that he did meet with Christ. Christ did appear to him. Christ did personally set him apart and give him a mission, give him a purpose, and send him on his way. Christ did that. Paul's pedigree can be defended easily. Secondly, I want us to see this, and I'm going to end with this, that Paul's life is a model and reminder of what the grace of God can do in our lives. So I want to give us three things real quick that we can learn from Paul's transformed life. The first thing is this, is that by grace, God alone is responsible for your salvation. God set Paul apart. God called Paul by grace. God was kind in his grace to reveal his son to him so that he would believe. And the good news of the gospel is this, that God is still in that same work and he's doing the same thing. And many of us in the room can raise our hand and say, hey, that is true of me, non-believer. He's also doing it for you. But we got to know that our salvation takes us completely out of the equation. Yes, we have to repent and believe, but we have to know that the pursuit of grace, we don't deserve that. We don't earn that. We couldn't call it on ourselves. That's given to us freely. All we have to do is respond. There is nothing we could have done. There is nothing we can do to deserve this gift. We can only receive it by grace. And, you know, God has to do it. And that's great news for us because he's the only one that can do it fully. (laughs) He's the only one that can accomplish it. If it was up to us to keep our salvation, y'all, we would lose it before we walked out of these doors. If it was up to us, (laughs) we would never be able to keep it. He's the only one that can do it because he's the only one that can keep it. Secondly, by grace, God has a purpose for your life. And I love what this text says in verses 15 through 16. He says, but, and Paul is known for doing that, right? This kind of twist in this, in, this, in this language, the rhetorical device. But he says, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Why? In order. Here's the purpose, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Y'all, God did not save Paul in order for him to stay where he was. God did not save Paul in order for him to stay in the rubble of his life. Listen, if anyone had the right to be like, oh man, I can't believe Jesus had to come save me. I'm so bad. And like stayed in the rubble of his life. It would have been Paul. He should have been the one to do that. He was literally a persecutor of the faith. He was the one in charge of killing Christians. (laughs) Like the bishop, little Wayne said, (laughs) 
I'm not the one with the gun. I'm the one that gives the orders to the one with the gun, right? Like, like, like that was Paul. <laughs> well, y'all didn't know Paul was a gangster like that, right? <laughs> that might tell you a little bit about my <laughs> past, what God saved me from. See, God didn't save you for you to feel half sorry about the life that you lived before you knew him. Mm-mm. He saved you for a purpose. For Paul, it was to preach to the Gentiles, to the Gentiles. Before Paul knew Christ, he had this zeal in him. And he tells you, he describes it right here in the text. He had this zeal to move to the top of the ranks, to be among his people, to persecute the church. He had this zeal in him. Where did Paul's zeal go? It never left. It just got transformed. See, I don't know how you think about your purpose. But here's something that you might want to do. Maybe you need to hear this, that if you're feeling like you're stuck, maybe you've received the grace, maybe you believe Jesus Christ died, maybe you believe that he rose, but you're feeling like stuck, like, okay, but like what? Like, ah, <laughs> I feel guilt, I feel shame, I don't feel a lot of purpose, I don't feel motivated. Listen, here's, here's the thing. Look in your hands. Maybe you need to think about how God has wired you. What has he given to you? What has he gifted you with? See, we can so often get stuck in this mindset that once we get saved by Jesus, that that, that now we're supposed to turn into somebody completely different. Like God is not calling you to be somebody that you're not. He's calling you to be fully who you are in Christ. See, when Jesus saves you, he calls you to himself. He doesn't ask you to become someone you're not, but to fully step into the person that he's created you to be. He's not asking you to hold a slingshot like David. He's not asking you to hold a staff like Moses. He may not even be asking you to be an apostle, ministry, church planner like Paul, but he's asking you to do something. (laughs) What's in your hands? What is it? By grace, you have been saved and you have been called to something. You have a purpose. We can walk in that. The last thing is this. By grace, your former life no longer has a hold on you. I love what verse 13 says. He says this as he's talking about himself in his former life. He said, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. But hear this turnaround. He said by the time he was ministering to the churches in Judea, he says they were only hearing rumors about him. He hadn't even got there yet, right? And he said, here's what they were hearing about me now, though. They said they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. (laughs) Now, what a testimony. See, I I love the Bible because it gives us this 360-degree picture of all the people that are in it. There's no perfect person in the Bible. The Bible is is full of imperfect people, and we get to see all of their colors as if they're passing white light through a prism. And on the other side comes all these colors. We get to see them all, some good and some bad. But they're all there, and in this chapter, we get to see Paul's life just like that. 
This isn't the first time or the only time Paul does this. Paul shows us his life so many times in his letters to these churches, how he was a proud Pharisee, this violent persecutor of the church. He would have laughed and literally scoffed at the crucifixion of Jesus. But the grace of God. See, if you're in Christ, this is your story too. And if you're not in Christ, this can be your story See, Paul's story is a model. It's a model of grace that shows us that we don't have to run from our past, right? Like we can actually take a step back. We can hold the prism up to our life and see that white light come through and come off the other side and see all the lights, some that we like and some that we don't, some that are beneficial, some that are harmful. We can actually see those. And the gospel of grace tells us that we can see it in full and we don't have to run from it. We can actually embrace it. And you come out on the other side as a new creation in Christ. In fact, I would argue that this is the only way that you can really embrace that new creation life, that new gospel identity that you have because of the grace of God. Not that you run from who you are, but that you fully believe that you've been transformed from who you are. Y'all, if you've received the grace of Christ, you are a new person, you are a new creation. And you don't have to deny your old life. You don't have to wallow in shame and guilt, but you can actually walk out of that free, new creation, a new person. You are transformed. And that's the challenge for us this morning, y'all. See, if you're a believer in this room, are you aware of the grace of God that saved you? And are you aware of the grace of God that has kept you? (laughs) Listen, if you are, Stop tiptoeing around God as if you owe him something. And stop tiptoeing around man as if you have something to prove or if you have something to hide. You do not. You are free by grace. And if you're not a believer, like maybe you can begin to see that the ways you thought about God and salvation are full of air. You've been plagued by this thought that you have to somehow bridge the gap between you and God. There's something that you have to do. There's something that you have to earn. Man, you think the gospel sounds too good to be true. It can't be easy. It can't be that easy. The grace of God can't come and love me. No, non-Christian, the grace of God can love even you, especially if he could love a sinner like me. So I'm going to plead with you this morning. I want to tell you, stop trying to earn and surrender your life. The call is not to work, but it's to repent and believe so that you can receive the greatest news in the world. It's not too good to be true. It's really just that good. Let me pray we receive this. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for your love. I'm grateful for your son. I'm grateful for what he's done on the cross. God, your son has saved us. He has done the work. He has bridged the gap. And would you work it in our hearts to believe that there is nothing else left to do? Would you really work it in our hearts to believe this gospel of grace, this gospel that we can't add anything to our salvation? We can't bridge the gap. We can't do it. There's no one in here perfect. There's no one in here holy. There's no one in here righteous. No, not one, but you have given to us the perfect, holy, righteous one. 
And you promise that if we put our faith in him, that we get to receive the greatest news ever told, the greatest reality ever lived. Grace. Would you work it in our hearts to believe this? Would you do a work in this room, God? We praise you. Thank you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.